Hello, my name is Tapiwa Maseba and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 58. First, some headlines. The UK government has announced that pubs and restaurants are some of the venues that can reopen on the 4th of July, but will need to take the contact details of patrons. Hotels, hairdressers, outdoor theme parks, and libraries can also reopen. The 2-meter social distancing rule has also been relaxed to 1 meter plus. In law firm updates, Freshfields has opened their London office ahead of a phased return to work. Linklaters and Dentons have opened their London office for those who find it difficult to work from home. And Reed Smith has opened their London office on a voluntary basis. Microsoft is closing all of its physical retail stores except for four, including one in London, which will be revamped into an experience center that sells no products. Surprisingly, there will be no layoffs or job cuts, as Microsoft is interested in developing the careers of those in this, quote, diverse talent pool, end quote. In a high street real estate update, also related to episodes 45 and 49, UK retailers only paid 14% of the £2.5 billion quarterly rent due this past week. Aston Martin, a company whose rescue we mentioned in episode 39 headlines, has turned to issuing new shares as a way to raise additional funds during this time. And finally, despite escalating accusations over security threats, a Cambridge Council planning authority has approved plans to build a £1 billion Huawei research base, which will become Huawei's international HQ for their fiber optic business. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. This week's structure is two longer reads. In the first longer read, the European Commission has opened a number of antitrust investigations, but taking center stage this week is their investigation into the £35 billion PSA and FCA merger. We first spoke of this merger in episode 27, late 2019. In case you haven't noticed, I love a callback. Not only does it add depth to our coverage, but I'd also argue that that's what commercial awareness is all about. Connecting stories, building on stories, and creating a better understanding of events, sectors, client bases, and practices. So, in episode 27, we detailed the merger between France's largest carmaker, PSA, which owns Peugeot, Citroën, and Vauxhall, merging with Italian-American company Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, creating the fourth largest carmaker in the world. The merger's main motivation back then was to spread costs in the research and development of autonomous and electric vehicle production. Since then, we mentioned in episode 39 that the UK, as part of its pursuit for net zero carbon emissions by 2050, pushed forward a planned ban on the sale of new diesel, petrol, and hybrid cars from 2040 to 2035. Pair this with episode 51's headline that the SMMT, or Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, reported that the UK suffered its worst sales slump this past April, a 97% drop in sales compared to the same time last year. We can assume similar figures across the world. These two updates come together to make the need for consolidation within the automotive industry not only favorable, but potentially imperative for survival. But, as you know from how I introduced this, the European Commission has now opened an in-depth investigation into the merger, as the merger could reduce competition in the commercial vans market. This means that the EC has until the 22nd of October to make a decision on the transaction, which could theoretically see them blocking the merger. 
Now, in all fairness, the merged company would have a stronghold in the commercial vans market. PSA and FCA would collectively own more than a third of commercial vans in the market, which is more than double the amount of their closest competitors. The focus on commercial vans is also quite forward-looking from the EC. In her own words, Margaret Verstager, head of the European Commission, said that commercial vans are, quote, a growing market and increasingly important in a digital economy where private consumers rely more than ever on delivery services, end quote. And so, as the high street has struggled during the lockdown and will continue to struggle long after, and online shopping rises, commercial vans used by couriers will only grow in demand. That's a nice intersection between the impact of retail on the automotive industry, isn't it? But back to the story, that's quite a fair concern by the European Commission. However, considering the issues the automotive industry has been facing even before the pandemic, you'd think the antitrust bodies would... read the room? I understand that it is part of antitrust to encourage competition to the benefit of consumers, but there will be far less competition if companies don't survive during this time. It seems that even the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, an antitrust body labeled by a report from Alan Overy as the world's most aggressive antitrust enforcer, has acknowledged this need to read the room by allowing Amazon's funding of Deliveroo recently as a result of the financial strain of the pandemic, a story we mainly covered in episode 38. In saying that, though, the same CMA blocked the Sainsbury's and Asda merger for, quote, substantial lessening of competition, end quote, amid the economic uncertainty of a looming Brexit. That we covered all the way back in episode 15. Multiple trips down memory lane. I say this to not only illustrate just how unique the current economic circumstances are, but that seemingly, antitrust bodies are somewhat unpredictable. Or are they? It seems the lawyers involved in this merger not only expected this to happen, but seemingly wanted it to? They included a second in-depth investigation by the EC in the timeline they presented to their clients when working through this merger. They expect the merger to be completed in early 2021. This also seemed to happen by design. The way EC antitrust action works is, after a first investigation, any antitrust concerns are brought up to the companies in question. They then have a deadline to make concessions to satisfy these concerns. If no concessions are made by a certain deadline, a second, more in-depth investigation begins automatically. PSA and FCA let their deadline concerning the commercial vans lapse, sparking the second investigation, assumedly following the advice of their lawyers. Any talk into why would be conjecture, but since we're here, why not? In my mind, the rationale is hoping the European Commission reads the aforementioned room. They eventually approve the deal with minimal concessions, acknowledging both companies' importance in the sector and in Europe, and the need for the merger. It puts the ball in the Commission's court and causes no delays as this was accounted for in the timeline anyway. So, that's the update from episode 27, and it highlights an essential part of M&A, which is antitrust and safeguarding against antitrust action blocking a merger on behalf of the client. I cannot think of a quicker way to frustrate a client than to tell them that the months and sometimes years of payments to their lawyers was for a deal that fell through as a result of antitrust action the lawyers should have predicted and warned against. For that reason, assessing deals like this, backdrop by the economic and public climate, 
And taking note of and trying to predict how antitrust bodies react to it is not only good practice, but it's also kind of fun. Can I say that? Yes, it's fun. I stand by it. The less of a chore we make commercial awareness, the easier it is to develop it. Furthermore, it also gives us a reminder of the issues the automotive industry is facing beyond the pandemic and the balance antitrust bodies need to strike, especially in times of economic uncertainty. In closing, a few questions for you. How do you think antitrust bodies should regulate and enforce during times of economic downturn? More strict or more lenient? Or should it be purely case by case? And speaking of balance, what do you think about that 2035 ban? Between environmental sustainability and saving an industry, how should the balance now be struck? Credit for this story goes to Peter Campbell, Javier Espinoza, and Anna Deliz. For the second and final read, in a follow-up of episode 45 and Into Properties' response to non-payment by their commercial tenants, they themselves have failed to renegotiate their £4.5 billion debt since then, meaning that they have entered into administration, directly putting over 3,000 jobs at risk and over 100,000 jobs indirectly at risk. Linklaters will advise KPMG, the administrator. Into Properties famously owns the Trafford Centre in Manchester and Lakeside in Essex, and as an owner of 14 shopping centres, it is the UK's largest shopping centre owner. Debt has been an issue for a number of years, and retail has been shifting to online for a long time, but obviously a failure by commercial tenants to pay rent to their landlords, an issue Into, among others faced, could not have helped the situation. Bear in mind, as reported on in episode 49, all commercial landlords were banned from demanding rent arrears from their tenants until the 30th of June. Before this ban was announced by the UK government, Into had actually threatened some of their tenants with statutory demands for rent owed, stating that they had, quote, neither the desire or financial capacity to bankroll global, well-capitalized brands who have just decided they don't want to pay their rent, end quote. As a result of that ban, they found themselves with little negotiating power to receive rent from their tenants, and little leverage in renegotiating their debt with their lenders, resulting, at least in some part, to this. What followed was administration, which we defined in episode 47, and practically, it will probably mean job cuts and asset sales as a means to rescue at least some parts of the business. Those assets being the individual shopping centers, into owns. With that said, let's talk about it. Very rarely do we have episodes in which we don't mention retail closures or administrations or job cuts. Yes, Into was heavily in debt, but even the first longer read includes an acknowledgement that every day, consumers stray further from physical retail. At this point, I don't even know if there's any novelty in just ending a story there. So, let's go further. Let's talk about this particular deal's ripple effects. Linklaters potentially lose a client they've acted for for over a decade if Into Properties is no more after this. As great as insolvency and administration work is in the short term for firms, we go back to that client pool discussion we've had before, most recently in episode 55. Firms having fewer clients to get work from is difficult to spin into a positive. That's the first ripple. 
Secondly, as a result of the pandemic and the writing on the wall for physical retail, there aren't many property groups in the market for shopping centers, and especially a large portfolio of shopping centers. Because of this, if the administration results in an asset sale, it could be for very cheap prices, devaluing shopping centers across the market, including for other property groups and commercial landlords. The failure of retail could therefore result in a large drop in commercial real estate value in the UK, at least for shopping centers. Once again, that affects the volume of work for firms. Of course, the solution could be for real estate teams to look towards other forms of real estate, large-scale private residential, for example. But once again, that's a client pool issue if suddenly firms are vying for work in fewer areas. Now that we've addressed the ripple effects, let's get a little candid in our analysis. First, we need to revisit the ban on commercial landlord action. Hindsight is 2020, but considering the UK's largest shopping centre owner has entered into administration four days before the end of the ban, there surely must be considerations of what if. Actually, at the time, I ran a poll on the podcast's Instagram page about whether the ban leveled the playing field between commercial landlords and their tenants, and 65% of you voted no. Does this outcome change your view at all? And in retrospect, was the government's ban still the right decision? Of course, I need to stress that once again, Intu's problems ran deeper than just the past two quarters of rent, but this surely stoked the flames. Next, the pandemic is not the cause, but the catalyst for a number of changes we are witnessing now. Automotive in the first story, aviation over countless episodes, and retail in High Street over the life of the podcast. And I've avoided asking this question because I genuinely don't have the answer to it, but what is the long-term solution for all these newly unemployed people when these retailers cease trading? Of course, we can laundry list the practice areas involved all day whenever something like this happens. Real estate and even dispute resolution for the ongoing negotiations with Intu's tenants to pay rent, banking and finance to negotiate with their lenders all this time, regulation with commercial tenants looking to follow pandemic-related bans and rules, employment in the looming redundancies, and of course the administration and insolvency practices. But beyond laundry lists, What's the long-term outlook for this? We actually mentioned in episode 43 that housing sec Robert Jenrick had a property development idea that would include demolishing disused commercial buildings and turning them into homes. And yes, that could resolve the housing shortage crisis, but who will live in these properties if thousands of those employed in retail are being made redundant by the minute? Yes, I am aware that's a bit of a conflation, but it allows me to ask you a number of loaded questions. First. What is the future of retail? I still think there is some novelty in spending the day in a shopping center, but the pandemic generally makes that less attractive, and the novelty may not justify the high rent and amount of space those centers take up. Microsoft in the headlines is now making experience centers that sell no products. Apple stores have a number of free classes and encourage a lot of try-before-you-buy for their products. However, not every retailer has the luxury of being able to pay rent without selling many products in the physical outlet. So, what's the future of physical retail? Is there a way to revive the high street and the physical shopping experience in general? And if not, what do we do with those spaces? 
And though we've asked what the future of work is through the lens of whether working from home should be the new norm, let's go a little further. What is the future of employment as automation rises and we rely less on physical shopping? I know it's more comfortable to think of those thousands of jobs in the abstract, but realistically, those are people who will be seeking employment elsewhere if they lose those jobs. So, really, what is the future of work, especially if some of these jobs disappearing are not going to come back when the pandemic is over? I know that some of these questions will technically be above your pay grade as a solicitor, and your future clients may be a bit confused if you lecture them on the future of retail when they've come to you with a simple employment law issue. But asking yourself these questions will definitely assist you in connecting more stories and thinking on your feet if presented a question like this in an interview. Ultimately, a commercial lawyer is also entrepreneurial and forward-thinking, and these are questions that will be answered in our lifetime. So what's keeping you from being the one with the answers? Credit for this story goes to George Hammond, Joanna Partridge, and Gabriella Kane. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow the podcast on your listening platform. And if you do enjoy it and find it useful, be sure to recommend it to a friend. Just to let you know, in the next episode, we will definitely talk about Wirecard. It was still developing late Friday, and we may find out more early this coming week. And I want to ensure that my coverage is as extensive as possible. But the story truly is a doozy, and I hope you will be around to hear it. I also hope you enjoyed last week's episode, which was an interview with Shegan Oshuntakun, the London managing partner of BCLP. I'd like to thank him again for taking the time to participate. I hope to make interviews with partners a semi-regular occurrence, so if you ever do have any specific questions you'd like me to ask them, DM me on the podcast Instagram page, which is at commawarepod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D. Other than that, thank you for listening, for your support and your patience, and you'll hear from me next week. I hope you're staying safe and staying inside. Until the 4th of July, at least, when you can go outside a little more. But I hope you remain safe during your outdoor endeavors then.